Well, welcome. This is uh, episode 35 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the hack, Hugh Rimminson, and with me is uh, the Professor, Professor of Politics, uh, National Political Editor for the 10 Network, Peter Van Onselen. Peter, how are you? G'day, Hugh. Very well. Parliamentary sitting. Very, very interesting. Uh, the government not doing as well as it would like, I suspect. Absolutely. And I feel that uh, there would be nothing colder between us, Peter, than if I was to say, shake your hand in the manner that Michael McCormack, the leader of the National Party, did when he shook the hand of the new Deputy Speaker of the uh, Federal <laughs> Parliament, Lou O'Brien, um, the man who shares the same party, but almost it seems nothing else. They shook hands. Another great Alex Ellinghausen photograph of the two of them. And honestly, it was colder than a winter's day in Wilson's Promontory. It was. Look, how embarrassing, how humiliating for Michael McCormick, what transpired. I mean, for any listeners not across it, you know, Lou O'Brien resigns from the National Party Room, stays in the LMP, it was essentially a protest against Barnaby Joyce not being successful with the leadership spill from the week before. He says he'll continue to support the government and Scott Morrison's prime ministership, but he clearly is not interested in supporting Michael McCormick as National Party leader. That's why he won't sit in their party room. But then Labor, uh, with the support, it has to be said, of Lou O'Brien, because he agrees to accept the nomination to, t to fill the deputy speaker's position that became vacant as a result of the reshuffle uh, on the front bench, would have gone to Damien Drum if the National Party's leader got his way because Damien Drum was one of his supporters, a previous whip of the party. But Lou O'Brien says, OK, I'll have a crack. All of Labor and I think almost all of the crossbench got behind him. And I think the numbers from my calculations seem to be five. Five nationals, which includes Lou O'Brien himself, voted for him, which meant the absolute humiliation of McCormick and I guess Damien Drum by extension, missing out on what is normally a fait accompli, the deputy speakership going to the national who is the choice of the leader. Instead, it's gone to a national who refuses to sit in their party room. And then, as you say, that, uh, that handshake, which was as cold as a wet fish. It's, it's interesting because you say five, it has to be at least five. At least. And that would assume that Bob Catter decided to be part of this uh, uh, sort of bit of mischief against the National Party leadership as well. Um, uh, I mean... It says so much, Hugh, because it just says that whether it's five or more, it says that at least a handful of nationals are not only prepared to try to have a coup from the week before and, and try to spill the leadership, that happens in politics, they're prepared to then just utterly humiliate their leader in the aftermath of that, revealing quite blatantly that stability is not something that they're fussed about. Uh, you know, Siding with Labor is something they're prepared to do. Leaving McCormick to twist in the breeze, they don't mind doing that either. And there's something in this about Morrison as well, because you know it was only just a little bit earlier in the question time that he was talking about you know what a great MP Lou O'Brien was before this all happened, he was almost prepared to say, well, you know, he's continuing to vote with the government, so that's Michael McCormick's problem, that he won't sit in their party room, as opposed to mine, which goes against the kind of solidarity that we saw during the Howard years between Nationals, leaders and the Prime Minister. It's very, very interesting. It's not yet a critical problem for Scott Morrison. It is without question a critical problem for Michael McCormack. And I think the other thing which was telling was when Michael McCormack at one stage in question time got up to stand on his feet, um, Barnaby Joyce made a, uh, a very elaborate point, which was caught on the cameras within the 
the parliament. And those cameras are not driven by journalists, it must mm. be said. They're supposed to be completely neutral recorders of what takes place. They're essentially public servants who run those cameras. But as Michael McCormack got to his feet, uh, also getting to his feet was Barnaby Joyce, who with an elaborate eye roll marched out on his own leader. <laughs> Now, now, at what point do you get? You've got you've got a, a national party, Queensland National Party leader, accepting an endorsement, a nomination from the Labour Party in order to secure an office, which is a more lucrative office, that of deputy speaker. I think yep. it's a pay rise of forty odd thousand. At what point do you start to edge into beyond being a mere rat and becoming this whole little cabal? what Malcolm Turnbull would have called the terrorists who are out after the I'm leadership of the party. I'm so glad you used that term because I was about to do the same. This is what happens when political terrorists are, if you like, listened to and you are negotiating with them. It happened during the Turnbull era. It happened with the National Energy Guarantee when a small number, an absolute minority, is able to thrust its weight around because the absolute majority has indicated a preparedness to negotiate with them with a gun to their heads, politically speaking. And this is the problem. Once you set that precedent, others see it and learn from it, and this is what is now happening. Now, Michael McCormick is making his own situation worse because he doesn't, if you like, extend the olive branch and promote the occasional person from the Joyce side of this but, leadership showdown. But wouldn't showdown. that be rewarding the terrorists if he did? Well, not necessarily because, I, look, I, I think, feel free obviously to disagree, I know you will if, if that's what you think, but I think that having leadership showdowns and spills, that's part and parcel of politics. What's not part and parcel of politics is in the aftermath of that, within days or a week, to spill again, like what happened with Peter Dutton. Or indeed, when a party room, like with the National Energy Guarantee, makes a decision overwhelmingly to then just hit the airwaves on 24-hour news in the cycle and slam the decision. So in my view, in the aftermath of losing a leadership spill, I think I don't think you're giving in to those Barnaby Joyce supporters to put a couple of them into the front bench. What you're doing is you're saying, we're all in the one party. You had a crack. We respect that you had a different view, but now we all get on with business. I think negotiating with them is to, is, is to if you like, start giving in to them on policy scripts and all the rest of it. And then they get the message that they can do this, which is what they're now doing. They're just going to create a death by a thousand cuts to Michael McCormick. You know, it's hard to see him surviving now, but the issue is how long does he survive on his knees before they finally cut him down? It is funny, isn't it, how the National Party is one element of uh, the political landscape and yet we're talking about it a great deal. It, it is in a state of abject dysfunction at the moment. The question, as you have just put it, is how long does Michael McCormick survive? And on his knees, and that's the issue. You know, he's... and you know, he hasn't promoted the odd Barnaby Joyce person in his defence. I suspect if he were here with us right now and was answering honestly the question, why didn't you promote some of these Joyce supporters? I think his answer would be that wouldn't make any difference, Peter and Hugh. The reason it wouldn't is because they are political terrorists. So all they would do then is they would be on the inside of the tent doing the proverbial out rather than in. Uh, and that would be even worse with leaks out of cabinet and all the rest of it. I think that would be his fear. But what he's done is he's therefore bunkered down and he said, well, okay, fine. Whereas there's 21 of us in the party room. We're a divided party room. There's at least six Joyce supporters who are totally rogue as opposed to just those who voted for him. Uh, we are keeping them out of the tent uh, and we are 
persevering with the fact that they will continue to to whinge and whinge loudly, that's a dangerous strategy because eventually others in his ranks that are at the moment backing him tentatively may decide, well, God, there's an inevitability about this. Maybe we just need to give the terrorists what they want. That's what happened with Malcolm Turnbull. It is tough for him. You know, sometimes you feel sorry for these guys. The um, the, the current crisis is in the National Party. At what point does it become a crisis for Scott Morrison? Yeah, look, in, in a low-level sense, which I think is what you already alluded to, in a low-level sense it already is because he's got 77 seats. Uh, we, we've had it displayed now as a result of the Deputy Speaker's position, the weakness of that slender majority when you have rogue MPs who are prepared to cross the floor. They've only done it on an issue that doesn't really matter to the government. It's certainly not a policy issue right now. And they've done it to support one of their own, even if he's a bit of a disaffected one of their own, Lou O'Brien. But it's a sign of the fragility of the government. It's a sign that Labor's attempts to talk about chaos within the coalition might generate some belief in the community over time. So there are issues there for Scott Morrison. Where they become more apparent is if they start, I think, to really impinge on his electoral standing in Queensland because most of the nationals who have a problem with McCormick are Queensland nationals or at least former Queensland nationals in the case of Barnaby Joyce. If this becomes a state-based problem for Scott Morrison, then it becomes an electoral problem for him as well. Okay, so so before we get down to the <clears throat> excuse me, the Queensland element, what what we saw with this Lou O'Brien deputy speakership was those characters voting with a Labour Party mm. idea. Now, in reality, if there is a distance between Michael McCormack and the, some of those rogue Queensland Nats and a distance between Scott Morrison and some of those rogue Queensland Nats, surely in reality there is an even greater distance, obviously, between the Labor Party and those rogue Queensland Nats. So in practice, how often are we going to see a situation in which uh, those... Queensland Nats, who are not comfortable with McCormack, uh, are going to vote Mm. with any motion that is with the Labor Party, let alone adding their numbers to the Greens. Less often rather than more often, but there is a risk, I would argue, that if the government panders to those rogue nationals a little too much here and there to try to keep them in the tent rather than, for example, just move to the crossbench, even if by moving to the crossbench they aren't moving closer to Labor, then you could actually see the moderate flank of the Liberal Party start to fight back. We saw a little bit of this uh, on the first day of the second sitting week for the year, on the Monday, where you had your Trent Zimmermans and the like pushing back a little bit um, from the moderate wing of the Liberal Party. So I think one of the bigger tensions for the government and for Scott Morrison is less those electoral numbers in the House and more that the divisions at the moment, which can, can be contained perhaps cease to be able to be contained on other policy fronts, Hugh. You know, the religious discrimination bill hasn't come up yet. There are issues that moderate Liberals who currently are staying inside the tent but are frustrated by some of the drift right of the party for quite a while now, certainly post the the Turnbull era, that they might be prepared to start to go a little bit rogue as well. And then Scott Morrison has people going rogue on both sides. It's interesting because in the last election, the move in Queen, those Queensland seats, which ultimately resulted in a big two-party 
swing towards the LNP came via parties that were even more disaffected on the right. So, you know, if there's room to move up there, they would feel in Queensland as if they have to move further right. And yet, as you say, there's the Trent Zimmermans in North Sydney, you know, Dave Sharma, new to Parliament in Wentworth, Malcolm Turnbull's old seat that was held briefly by Karen Phelps. If you're looking down at some of those inner city held liberal seats in Victoria, Katie Allen, uh, for example, is another one who has spoken uh, in favour of more action on climate change, a stronger line on climate change. This is and remains with each of these MPs meeting the desires and in some cases the prejudices of their own constituents. This is the thing that is tearing the country apart. It's Mm. reflecting what is the reality on the ground for MPs, whether they're in North Queensland or those in the inner city and all within that broad uh, coalition, you know, centre-right side of politics. Yeah, and it's, there's a mixture, isn't there, of the self-interest of the inner-city Liberal MPs, uh, coupled with their more moderate credentials on some of these issues, including climate change. So the two come together. I actually think they're under less threat now, uh, politically speaking or electorally, because of the change of leader of the Greens, actually, from from Richard Di Natale to Adam Bant. Adam Bant is a more angry, activist style of Greens leader who I think would be less appealing to some of those more moderate Liberal voters in those inner city seats who might be prepared to vote for a Richard Di Natale as a protest against a Liberal Party that's too right-wing or too dinosaur-like on climate change. But perhaps Adam Bant's a bridge too far for them as far as that goes. But nonetheless, even just ideologically, there's plenty of issues that those inner city Liberals have got problems uh, with the right flank of their own party or their own coalition on. And and I, I've raised it before and I will raise it more, no doubt, in the weeks and months to come when it becomes more apparent. But the Religious Discrimination Act that Christian Porter as the Attorney General is working on, uh, since being back here in Canberra for these first two sitting weeks, I can tell you, as I make my way around buying coffees on Channel 10's expense for all the various politicians, uh, I can tell you plenty of moderate Liberals are ready to arc up and complain about this but equally plenty of right-wing conservative Liberals are already arcing up and complaining that the Religious Discrimination Act doesn't go far enough. So that is a festering sore uh, in a policy sense and in a legislative sense that that in time I think uh, could become a little bit sicker. So if climate change is about nature, wait till we get started on God, I think is what you're saying. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. Okay, look, I I want to take a brief break because there's a lot more to talk about. I want to talk about Labor's difficulties with coal because that is also bubbling under under the issue and there's so much else to talk about with the, uh, you know, the state of the budget as coronavirus bites around the world and so on. Let's take a quick break. Peter Van Onselen, we'll be back in a moment. Hello, my name's James Matheson. Once you finish listening to this podcast, why don't you head over to Australian Survivor Talking Tribal. Each week, Luke Turkey and I break down every immunity, alliance and blindside the world's greatest game has to offer. So grab your torches and I'll see you over at Australian Survivor Talking Tribal. Welcome back. This is episode 35 of The Professor and the Hack. We're talking politics. Hugh Rimminson, I am the hack with uh, Professor Peter Van Onselen, uh, the 10 Network's uh, national political editor. Uh, we're seeing, Peter, the, um, you know, the, the sheer violence, if you like, in the, in the climate change issue tearing apart the coalition from Queensland nationals down to inner city liberals. Mm. Labor 
has managed to just basically bunker down and miss most of this fire flying around. But uh, that's not going to last forever, is it? They've got their own problems. Oh, they, they certainly do. I mean, I have to say, the fo- I like to focus on, on governments generally. So when governments have got inconsistencies in a policy sense, for me, that's, you know, where, where the real meaty stuff is at. Uh, and sometimes you see on social media and elsewhere, people feel like you're being biased because you're focusing on one side because they're in government. Having said that, exactly as you say, Hugh, over time, as we get closer to an election, as it's perhaps more likely that Labor can become a government sooner rather than later, they will have to deal with these inconsistencies when it comes to what their stance is around coal. Because hearing Richard Marles on Insiders on the ABC on the weekend fumble around for wording of what his view is about coal and a new coal mine or existing coal mines being continued for longer or government subsidies of coal. You know, he, he had more ums than he had answers in, in his diatribe as he was fumbling around David Spears's questions. And then on the Tuesday of the second sitting week on Radio National with Fran Kelly, Anthony Albanese was asked about his view on coal and he basically told her that he doesn't see a future for coal in Australia. Well, that is... I'm sorry, is pretty damn inconsistent between the leader of the opposition and the deputy okay, leader I, I, of the opposition. I want, to, I want to challenge you a little bit on that because I, I thought Miles really has got that job. What is it about, you know, selling a, you know, taking a turd and making it look like a chocolate eclair, <laughs> I believe is the old uh, the, the thing. So what Miles is basically saying is that he doesn't believe the government should be funding feasibility studies into coal, which is what uh, the current government is, is underway with the Collinsville uh, project, doesn't believe in government subsidies towards coal, um, and, and there's hundreds of millions of dollars being assigned to keep the Liddell coal mine operating mm. in New South Wales. So that is a government subsidy. But he doesn't – he says Labor doesn't have a ban on coal. Um, it's, it doesn't have a policy that there should be no new coal mines – this is miles uh, – provided that they meet all the environmental processes. So plainly, if you're a green-leaning voter, you're going to say, well, that's just weak from Labor. But at the same time, he's saying don't put any money into it. But if someone can – if the market wants to do it and it meets the environmental um, requirements – that's good enough. How different is that from Albo's position? Well, I think it's different because he keeps trying... Albo is... well, And and I didn't think they were too different, by the way, before the interview with Fran Kelly. Um, But she really pushed Anthony Albanese and he seemed to, the more he got pushed, rule out the role of coal, which is almost the exact opposite of what he was doing when he went on his far north Queensland tours since the last election, trying to reaffirm that he acknowledges that coal still has a place. So I I get what Miles is trying to do. I I hear you, Hugh. He's trying to walk the fine line between ruling out the future of coal without getting caught in the presence of coal now as in, in the energy mix. But Albanese, who was doing the same up until this interview with Fran Kelly, he really felt to me like he was going further than he has to date and therefore was trying to, if you like, watch his left flank this time rather than simply keep opining to the right flank. And maybe that was the circumstances. I mean, on the same day he did that was the same day that uh, bushfire victims were marching on the Australian Minerals Council, I think it was, or, or an equivalent association in Canberra to express their displeasure about 
you know, the role that they're having on, on climate change vis-a-vis bushfires. So maybe it was a contextual thing, but Albanese sounded a bit grumpy, seemed to go further than he had previously. And, and to my mind, at least, at least as an initial reaction, seemed to be somewhat contradictory uh, to what Richard Miles is saying. And I guess, let me put it this way. This is my takeout. Whichever side you're on on it, I, I think it highlights that it's a political difficulty for Labor where they're going to have to find some firm ground here in the lead up to the next election. And wherever they go on it, they're going to get wedged, right? If they if they try to make sure that they can hold votes in the North Queensland seats around coal mining communities, Adam Bant, even more than Dina Tali would have, will whack them in the inner cities. If they move in the direction that I, I at least thought Albo did in that Radio National interview, then they will get whacked. Um, as I'm sure uh, we will see in the days to follow that interview from the government on their right flank. Do you not think that for Labor it's a hopeless task to try to keep the coal seats in Queensland, that those are a lost cause, the swings were so enormous and uh, they weren't to moderate uh, LNP members, they were to, to, the, to the sort of the Conservatives mm. and, and they were being outflanked on, further on the Conservative right. That if there's anything in this from Labor, what they're trying to do is save seats like Joel Fitzgibbons in the Hunter Valley, where the biggest swings against Labor were taking place in those coal seats. Um, but that the- could be an issue too for them, don't you think? I mean, that's, I mean, as you say, maybe that is where their focus needs to be. But I, I think remaining inconsistent, or at least if they're perceived to be inconsistent on this, that might be the better way to put Everyone's it. Everyone's inconsistent on this. That's what, that's <laughs> well, what that's kills true. people. That, that's what kills, in fact, if there's anything which is showing how unstable the entire body politic is in Australia is that it doesn't matter whether you're a, a, a Liberal, whether you're a Labor, uh, unless you're on the extremes, it's only extremes that have the, uh, the advantage of purity on these issues. And, and so these debates work towards you know, the extremes. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm cautious about making a complete analogy between, say, a Greens position and, and some of those not in Parliament, but some of the, 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 the weirder characters who do turn up. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not a bad time to be, you know, on the fringes. Uh, because if you're trying to hold it together from the middle, it's a difficult enough task. Um, let me move on because there's another mm. vast issue that we have to grapple with, and that is uh, the state of the economy with um, coronavirus biting. You know, there are a lot of issues globally that are running, but... Um, Do you think that keeps Josh Frydenberg up evenings at the moment? Well, he always seems a fairly buoyant character, although he doesn't seem <laughs> to sleep much, it must be said. But, um, you know, you do wonder whether Josh Frydenberg, this, this would keep him up at night, could he become, like Wayne Swan, the man whose surplus gets hijacked by global events? Because if coronavirus continues to uh, to gather pace, and at the moment they're far from on top of it, the World Health Organization says we are still at the beginning of this, and if it shuts down, as is already starting to do, all kinds of global trade, uh, importantly for us, not just in resources, uh, but in the education market, then this is going to make a huge difference to um, our economy, to the surplus, and it could knock us around as it will do the world. Let, let, let's not forget the key issue here is that people are dying, but the economic issue of it is is that um, this could really knock us around for some period of time. How seriously do you think this is being taken by the government? I think it's being taken very seriously. Uh, I mean, I, I think 
they see the impact of the coronavirus, the fires, the droughts, the ongoing impact of the coronavirus. I mean, heavens above, you know, uh, the, the sort of the isolation to some extent uh, of China uh, coupled with the impact on even just a sector like education, you know, with over 100,000 Chinese students being barred from entry at the moment and where does that take the education sector as one of the biggest export sectors in our economy? All of those are issues. And that's before you even then talk about the health impacts. You know, the the coronavirus kills anywhere between 1% and 3% of people that get it and it's apparently incredibly infectious, uh, the experts are telling us. Now, obviously not everyone in the country will get it, but to put it into context, if all 25 million Australians got it, that means somewhere between a quarter and three quarters of a million people die from it. So not letting it spread is important medically for that profoundly obvious reason, but economically as well, uh, the shutdown impact of it on the economy, what it does to growth, what it does to various sectors like tourism, and as I've already mentioned, the higher education sector, this is really serious stuff. And I think the government knows that, but I'm not sure it knows which way to jump at the moment as it tries to navigate this attempt to deliver a surplus, which it politically needs to, vis-a-vis all the things that it's got to do to combat the realities of the coronavirus, not to mention all the spending needs that it has around things like, well, it sounds funny to say these in the one sentence, drought, flood and fires. Well, you would think if if it was to be so catastrophic, uh, as you've just described, where where everyone in Australia gets infected and then you have these hundreds of thousands of people dying, you'd think that uh, people might reasonably say, you know what, the surplus is not the critical issue just at the moment. But one of the things which which happens is that the drought has fundamentally affected regional areas. If there's a turn down in mining and resources because China's essentially uh, closing down shop, and we've seen some impacts of that already, then again, that's in mining communities and those communities that are dependent on mining, including ports, etc., they're the ones that feel that. If this education thing shuts down, that starts to be followed by an entirely different constituency, and that's basically the inner city ones crowded around uh, the major universities that make their living, uh, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, to a lesser degree in Brisbane and Perth and elsewhere, um, from those international students coming in out of Asia and particularly out of China. And that means that there's a, a shock in an area of the economy, a geographical area of the economy, which has been pretty resilient against downturns over the last few years, partly because of those students and those other uh, elements of the economy having done pretty well. Um, it starts to look then like it's a bit of a generalised crisis, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And you know, how much forgiveness will the government get for how it handles it vis-a-vis what it's promised up until now? Uh, They were very unforgiving of the impact, for example, just on the budget and economic growth of the global financial crisis during the Labor years. Um, You know, how will they react in comparison to that? Uh, They accused Labor of overreacting, but that became 2020 hindsight wisdom. Uh, Do they underreact to an emerging crisis, which can actually stall growth far more significantly. And it might mean you spend less, but it could also mean that as a result, uh, you fall into negative territory, which becomes recession-like. Sure, but it falls to their strengths of, uh, you know, the coalition's traditional strengths of doing things like securing borders. That's true. Christmas Island gets into play. Uh, You know, you might see some military floating around doing good things. Um, So... 
it, it works does, there. Yeah. And then the other consideration, and this this goes back to why I've always thought that Scott Morrison should be in a position to do well. I thought this from when he took over from Turnbull compared with particularly Peter Dutton as being the other alternative, is that I've always felt that Scott Morrison is the right weight uh, in a sense in terms of where the centre of gravity is politically in centre-right politics. He's conservative but not excessively conservative. He's moderate but not he, he's not you know, overly moderate, and so therefore can sit can sit somewhere. It's a difficult trick. The last guy to do it well was probably Howard. Mm. And I do notice in the essential poll that among that, that although Scott Morrison's uh, standing as a individual leader has dropped and has done ever since the Hawaiian holiday, among coalition voters it still remains quite high, somewhere up above seventy percent, and that that would indicate if I was Scott Morrison saying, you know what, we've made mistakes. Um, we can learn from those mistakes, but the core base still fundamentally believes in him on the centre-right more than any other alternative, and that's a strength for him. Oh, look, it absolutely is. As you say, the 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 caveat is how does he now get received post-Hawaii and some of those things that took a bit of shine off him. But we've seen other leaders suffer from, from similar things at moments in time and the election is far enough away. He will hope to fix that as long as he actually does fix that. Uh, the other the other difference with Howard that I would point to is that I think Howard was a man of policy substance, whereas I think Scott Morrison, whilst he has that same orbit um, for the times that we live in that you point out in terms of his level of conservatism versus where he sits, you know, w- with the mainstream Australia, I, I think that he's a policy lightweight, you know, and, and a marketing guy. But people perhaps don't have a lens on that or, or don't care as long as they think that he's reflective of their value set. And I think he is. Howard was more conservative than Scott Morrison is, perhaps not on religious grounds, but on everything else he was. But so were Australians, if you go back to the pre-2007 era, particularly if you go right back to 1996 when he first got elected. So Australia has modernised since then, but not as much as some of the progressives might want or think or hope, whereas Scott Morrison, I think, becomes the modern Howard in where he sits versus the philosophy of mainstream Australia. But with the caveat, does the marketing guy get exposed? Does the bloke from the Hawaiian adventure never get to come back from that? That's that essential poll you point to suggests, at least amongst his base, he's still holding firm there. And he's got time. You know, he's got plenty of time. But he needs to show some courage and judgment. Just quickly before we go, PVO, is Sports Rorts finished? Look, it shouldn't be. Uh, I want to say this again on this podcast. It absolutely shouldn't be. I've got some stories brewing, Hugh, which I know you know about as well, uh, which we'll be uh, pushing out on 10 News first and I'll hopefully be continuing to write about and we'll be continuing to talk about here. It shouldn't be over with for one very simple reason. Bridget McKenzie only fell on her sword on a technicality and the government is standing by the very processes that led to the sports rot saga and all the evidence seems to be that there have been more examples of it across other grants programs until they fix it. We should keep reminding them of the disgrace that they all are when they use taxpayers dollars in such a partisan pork barreling way. So it's no, money, I not hope theirs. it's not over. Exactly. Okay. PVO fabulous to talk to you. Another busy week in politics. Listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.
Hey, Husey here. Can't get enough. Hey, Husey, we have a problem. Well, here we are to help you even more. We've got a podcast. Find it at your favourite podcast app.